Good morning, church. Great to see you. Beautiful, sunny morning. Glad you're here. I want to say a special uh, welcome to those joining us in this portion of the service over in the sanctuary. Welcome to you. So glad you're here as well. I know you've been uh, enjoying this uh, special series we've been on called Transformed. Gotten a lot of good feedback. We've talked about spiritual health, physical health, emotional health, mental health. Last week we talked about managing our moods and dealing with our emotional quotient and trying to elevate that because it's so important. Our feelings are a bit fickle, and so it's important to uh, have a management of that. Today we want to talk about relationships. We're going to use as our text Genesis chapter 3, the first uh, human beings, Adam and Eve, and what we can learn from them. We're going to uh, discover today that there are three basic fundamental fears that influence all of our relationships in a negative way. And, and every single one of us in the room today suffer from these fears in one way or another. You'll hear yourself, you'll find yourself in this sermon today identifying with some of these fears. And then we want, also want to talk about what the antidote is to those fears because we want to drive fear out of our life and allow God's love to fill our life. So today's text again, Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to begin reading at verse 6. If you have your Bibles turned there, that'd be great. If not, uh, we'll project the words on the screen for you. Now let me invite you to stand as you're able to hear God's Word. Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard in the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe, with painful labor, who you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree, about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. I mean, God inspires today through this important story. You may, may be seated. As I mentioned, we want to look today at how we can diffuse the fears that ruin our relationships. You know, the created order came into place and Adam found himself there amongst the other creatures of creation 
And at some point he noticed that all of the other animals had, had a mate, had a partner, and he didn't have one. I think there's a couple of reasons for this. God, God wanted Adam to be, become aware of his actual need for a partner, a mate. And then the second thing is I think at some point uh, God made Adam and he stepped back and he goes, oh, man, I can do better than that. And then he made a woman. That could be the bigger part of it. We know that out of dust, out of the dirt, God made Adam. But we also learn from Genesis that, that not from dirt, but from Adam's rib came Eve. This may explain why men are more likely to get dirty and not afraid to, to be in the dirt, whereas women maybe are a little less so. And we also understand some symbolism here because, because out of Adam's rib came this woman, not out of his head, which would imply some lording over her or out of his feet which might imply she over him but rather out of his side to suggest uh, that partnership that intimacy that that collegiality that heartfelt love it's interesting also uh, to note that God placed Adam in a deep sleep and so Adam goes to sleep and when he awakes he is now laying eyes on the first woman it's the first woman that Adam has ever seen naked and he goes whoa Whoa, man, oh man, whoa, man, whoa, man, whoa, woman, uh, woman. And that, of course, is where that word came from. <laughs> so you come to church, you learn things. Oh. So they're in, this, they're in this perfect environment. There is no sin, there is no sadness, no sickness, no sorrow, no suffering, no deceit, no lying, no manipulation, no jealousy, none of that going on in their relationship. And God places this one tree in the garden and says, look, that's, that, that's the one that's off limits. Because God always provides for us free will and a choice to be made. The reason God placed even the potential for temptation in the Garden of Eden is so that men would choose to follow him, to obey him, to love him. And so is the case today. And of course, Satan comes along and tempts Eve and says to her, did God really save it? that you would die if you ate of that tree. Of course, that's another lie that God has perpetrated on your life. You won't die. You'll become like him. And this has been the age-old temptation because all of us suffer from this temptation to believe that God is old-fashioned, that God is out of date, that he's not progressive in his thinking, that he doesn't really know what will make me happy, and so I must usurp control of my life, and I'll make the choices that I know will make me happy. Uh, God's ideas are a little bit out of date, and therefore I'll resist his notion for my life to our own detriment of course and so we find Adam and Eve with these incredible incredible consequences of this failure and of this sin and all of us suffer from these these consequences to this very moment and with particular reference today to these relationship dysfunctions that that derive from these basic fears these fundamental fears I want to rehearse those fears with you this morning. I want to just mention that when you hear these fears, you will identify with them. All of us suffer from these fears, and, 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 and most of us will identify one of these fears as more predominant than the other. So listen for yourself in the sermon. Here's the first fear. You'll want to write this down. It's on your outline. And that is the fear of exposure makes me distant. The fear of exposure makes me distant. Now here's the truth. There's a lot in you and there's a lot in me that we don't like. 
Would you agree? That's the truth. There's a lot about us that we don't like. And the things that you don't accept about you, you have a fear will not be accepted by others. And so as a result of that, the tendency is to keep your distance. We ask the question, why can't I be closer to the people most precious to me? Why can't I be closer to my spouse, my children, my, my best friends? Why can't, I, why can't I develop a closer relationship with them? And, and the reason is that those things that you don't like about you, you don't want them being shared by anyone else because they might reject you. You're afraid that if people really find out what you're really like, that they won't like you any longer. Genesis 3, 9 and 10, God called Adam. He said, why are you hiding? Why are you hiding? Adam said, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Ah, what an interesting turn of phrase. I was afraid because I was exposed, and so I hid. Do you see, do you see it at work there? The fear of exposure makes me distant. Now, here's just a point of reference. Whenever God asks you a question like he asks Mo, uh, uh, Adam in this case, when, when God says to Adam, where are you? It's not like God doesn't know where he is. Anytime God asks you a question, he, he already knows the answer. What he's looking for from you and from me is honesty. He's not looking for information. He, wa he wants honesty. He wants us to be forthright. About that, So it starts with the owning up and being honest with God and honest with yourself that my relationships aren't what they could be if I wasn't so afraid of exposure, which makes me distant. Uh, so I wonder what we might be hiding from today because of fear. What are you pretending not to know? What are you pretending isn't a problem in your marriage, isn't a problem in your life, isn't a problem in your relationships? Again, God would just ask you the question. And will you be honest about that? He doesn't want you to fake it. He wants, to, wants you to face it. So I was naked. Now, this wasn't just physical nakedness, but this was also emotional vulnerability. And this is what we tend to be afraid of, of being exposed, of being uncovered, of being authentic, of being open, of being unprotected. Protected. Here's the point. When we are afraid of that kind of openness and vulnerability, my fear of exposure makes me distant. Now, one of the deepest needs we all have is to be loved, right? That's true. But one of your deepest fears is being seen for what you really are. And so that fear of exposure tends to make you distant. Now, there are three things, three stages, consequences that happen from this fear of exposure. One is shame. We, we learn this from Adam and Eve, verse 7. They suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So when you carry shame, you're easily embarrassed. When you carry shame, you fear embarrassment almost more than anything else. When you carry shame, you, you'll do almost anything in your life to avoid further embarrassment. So shame is one of those stages that you experience when this fear of exposure grips your life. Shame makes you more self-conscious, more nervous, more fearful of being humiliated. And there are many people in this room today because this is, this is the human experience. And you carry shame with you. And it makes you afraid. That leads to cover-up. Phase 2, verses 7b, it says, So they sewed fig leaves together to cover up themselves. Have you ever seen a fig leaf? It's very small. Today, uh, we have all kinds of other... I just throw that in there just for your consideration. I don't even know what it means. Uh, just a small leaf. 
to, I have to entertain myself along the way, if you don't mind. Today, we all have more sophisticated ways of covering up. For example, we use humor to cover up. You know, you, you, the jovial person always cracking a joke, you know, the class clown, always using humor to try to avoid intimacy and because of this fear of exposure. Some other use the whole idea of being all put together. You know, everything just looks right. You know, the clothes is right, the house is right, the car is right, all the accessories are right. You know, it's just the, it's the right impression, it's the right thing, it's the right words, it's the right carriage, all of that. So you give this image that you're all put together, but you're not. And you know it. And so you're covering up your fear by that. Another thing that people use today is online image. I mean, if you read some of the social media that some of you folks write, you would think reading your Facebook that you're the most popular person in the world. I mean, who wouldn't like you? I mean, you're perfect. Who wouldn't want to date you? Who wouldn't want to hang out with you? You're, you're, the, you're the most perfect person in the world. So could I just say, stop pretending you're, you're, you've got a perfect life on social media. Because it's not true. You're just using that to cover up other fears. Then there's a third phase. It goes from shame to cover up, and then that creates distance from God. In verse 8, it says, Then they hid from God among the trees. They hid from God. It's interesting. A guy years ago wrote a book called Why Am I Afraid to Tell You Who I Really Am? It's a good question. I'm afraid to tell you who I really am because you may not like who I really am. And that's why I'm afraid to tell you. It's because you might reject me. And nobody wants that. We not only start fearing other people, but we start fearing God out of this shame. And it tends to distance us from God. So let me just remind you, God doesn't expect you to be perfect. But he does expect you to be honest with him about that. So the first fear is the fear of being exposed because that tends to make me distant. Fear of exposure makes me distant. Here's the second fear out of these three fundamental fears that I want to mention. Number two, my fear of disapproval makes me defensive. Please don't raise your hand. My fear of disapproval makes me defensive. Now, now we move from simply hiding and running and covering up to now being defensive and actually start attacking other people. We're not just hiding, but now we're actually trying to hurt others as a result. Here's, what, here's another way of saying it. The more critical a person is, the more you know they fear disapproval. The more critical a person is, the more you know that they fear disapproval. The more critical, the more perfectionistic, the more attacking somebody else, they're always putting somebody else down, the more you know that that person fears disapproval. Because that's the way it shows up. The more I fear disapproval in my life, the more I'm going to point at other people and all that they're doing wrong. Verse 12, God asked, did you eat what I told you not to eat? And Adam answered, well, you gave me this woman and she gave me the fruit, so I ate it. You know, so Adam takes it like a man. He blames the woman. And he really didn't even blame the woman. He said, you gave me this woman and she caused me to eat. So, you know, it's her fault and it's also your fault. But it can't be my fault because Adam is afraid of disapproval and it makes him defensive. You know, before, you know, when it's just you and me, we were like this. This woman shows up, all goes to It's your fault for giving her to me, and it's her fault 
And, and for women, listen, Eve wasn't any more willing to accept responsibility. Genesis verse 13, Eve said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So Adam blames his wife and Eve blame, blames the snake. Great. The fear of disapproval makes me defensive. This happens in your marriages. This happens in relationships all the time. If anybody says anything to you, your wife says something to you that you feel has a hint of disapproval, you immediately get defensive. You, you attack back, you accuse, you excuse, you, get, you say some catty comment. This is what happens. My fear of exposure makes me distant and my fear of disapproval makes me defensive. Now that leads us to the third fear that I want to mention. This third basic fundamental fear and that is my fear of losing control makes me demanding. Uh-oh. My fear of losing control makes me demanding. The result of Adam and Eve's sin is that they lost control. They lost control of everything. They lost control of their destiny, their paradise, their world. They lost control. They're feeling totally out of control now because they actually are. So let me say it this way, a different way. The more out of control you feel, the more controlling you become. See, it's the fear of losing control that makes me demanding. The more out of control I feel, the more controlling I become. I start bossing people around. I start making demands. I, I start protecting myself. I start defending and demanding and demeaning. I start dominating. The more insecure you are, the greater is the need for you to get your own way. You've been around people in your life who were very demanding and controlling and dominating. And listen, it's, it's an indication of insecurity. <laughs> you would think that person is really powerful. They've got everything together. They're, they're, they're self-assured, self-aware. Just the opposite. The, the less control you feel, the more control you, you, you need. The more demanding you become. Listen, a person who is a very secure person, you don't have to have your way all the time. You're self-assured. You're comfortable with who you are. You're confident in who God has made you and that God is in control of your life. So you don't have to have the control of every detail around you. My fear of losing control makes me demanding. Verse 16, God says to Eve, you'll have yearnings for your husband. In other words, you're going to love your husband, be drawn to him, even though your relationship with him is going to be messed up. He said, you're going to be drawn to your husband and desire your husband, but he will lord it over you. Wow. Berkeley version says he will dominate you. This is where the war of the sexes began. All this misunderstanding between men and women, husbands and wives, boyfriends and girlfriends, all the confusion, all the conflict, all the jockeying for power and position, all the tit for tat and this for that, all of that tension is created by this need for control. And my fear of losing control makes me a demanding person. So, that, so these are the three fears. And, and we identify with those, don't we? Uh, the, the, the fear of exposure, the fear of disapproval, the fear of losing control that, that makes me distant and defensive and demanding in relationships. So the question now we want to ask and try to answer is what is the antidote for these fears? What's the cure for these fears. Now, this is right in the middle of your outline. I want, I want you to make sure you write this down. 
There's only one antidote to these fears, and that's love. Now, don't dismiss me yet, because that sounds like preacher talk. The answer to your fears is love. <laughs> there they go again. Don't get all sappy on me here. And don't dismiss me, because, because it sounds too cliché-ish. We need to hear the truth of this and the power of this to eliminate fear in our lives because fear messes us up in relationship. And so what, what is the cure for it? Listen to 1 John 4.18. It says, wherever God's love is, there is no fear. Wow. Now, what, if the love of God is present, fear can't be present. Why is that? Because God's perfect love, the Bible says, drives out all fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. Think about it this way. The opposite of fear is not faith. The, the opposite of fear is love. Because love is such a powerful force. You can have all the faith in the world that it won't eliminate your fear. The only way to drive fear out of your life, and again, the fear of exposure, the fear of disapproval, the fear of losing control, those fears that mess up our relationships, the only way to get those fears out of your life is to place the love of God in your life. When the love of God comes in the front door, the Bible says fear has to go out the back door. So we want fear in our life. Let me, uh, recently, uh, this appeared in the paper, this tragic event just to the south of Muncie in Summitville. A couple in their 50s, and please forgive me, I do not know these folks. I did not know them. Maybe you know them personally, and, and I hope this isn't too painful for you. All I know about their story is what I read in the paper. But this couple in Summitville, in their 50s, their home is on fire in the middle of the night. The husband fights his way out of the house, thinking that his wife is right behind him. And he gets out of the house, which is now fully involved with fire, and realizes his wife is not with him. And this is before the, the fire uh, services arrive. And there he is, standing in the front yard of his house, he's okay. His house is fully involved, and his wife is in the house. And what we know he did is he ran back into the house, and he, he gathered his wife, who is already dead, and dragged her out of the house. And in so doing, was completely burned himself, and lived a few more days and died. Now let me ask you something. What would motivate a person to go into a house like that. Doesn't he know that if he goes in there, he's going to die? Doesn't he know he's going to suffer horribly and die? I mean, this is the love of a mother who would go in for her baby, right? This is a mother who would die. This is a, this is a husband now whose wife is in the house, and that's unacceptable to him. If you and I were standing on the front yard with that, with that man that night, we would be reluctant to go into that house because we'd be concerned about the consequences to our person if we went into the house. But while most of us, virtually all of us, I suspect, would stand there saying it's too late to go back in that house, he ran back in. How do you explain that? There's only one explanation for that. Perfect love casts out 
all fear. Perfect love. Just cast it out. So love went in the front door, fear went out the back door. And that's what motivated. And that's what made that possible. If you want the fear of exposure and disapproval and the loss of control to leave your life, then what you want to do is be filled with the love of God. Because when you get full of the love of God, the, the understanding of who God is in relation to you, that will change the way you relate to others. This is a powerful, powerful thing and has the potential to transform every relationship in the world. Because perfect love will drive out all fear. Now, here's what I want to ask. How do I learn to live in God's love? So let me give you three practical things that will help you to let love come in the front door so that fear will go out the back door. Number one, every day surrender my heart to God. Every day surrender my heart to God. I start the day, I surrender the center of my, my thoughts. I pray, God, help me to control my thoughts because my mind tends to go off on all kinds of tangents. Help me, God, to manage my thoughts. And then help me also to manage my heart, my emotions, my affections, because my feelings are fickle and I can't always trust them. So help me to manage my moods so that my emotional quotient will go up. Therefore, my relationship with you is stronger. My relationship with others is on better footing. God, I surrender my heart to you. I love Job chapter 11. I'm going to put this on the screen so you can, you can appreciate it better. Job 11, verses 13 to 18. This is what it says. It says, surrender your heart to God, turn to Him in prayer, and give up your sins, even those in secret. So do you see these three, these three premises? If you'll do these things, then there's these promises that will follow. Uh, every promise has a premise. Here's the premise. Surrender your heart to God, turn to Him in prayer, confess your sins. And then look what will happen. Then, notice the benefits, you won't be ashamed. Now hear that. Shame will be banished from your life. You won't be ashamed. Listen, lots of us in the room suffer from shame and the consequences of the fears produced by shame. What are you ashamed of? That thing has terrible negative consequences on your relationships. But the Bible promises you won't be ashamed. In fact, you'll be confident and fearless. How, how does that feel? Confident and fearless. Your troubles will go away like water beneath a bridge. How would you like to see your, your troubles just wash under the bridge and head downstream? There go my problems. Goodbye, troubles. How's that, how's that working? That's awesome. And your darkest night will be brighter than the noonday. Maybe you're in a dark place. Maybe you've been in a really dark place for a really long time. But what if, what if the sun shone like noonday sun on top of that dark place and just dispelled the darkness? Wouldn't that be wonderful? That's the promise. Then you'll rest safe and secure. You'll be able to sleep and rest and be at peace, filled with hope and emptied of worry. How good is that? Filled with hope. Emptied. Aren't you worried about that? Well, you know, I, I should be, but I'm not. I'm actually filled with hope. Well, didn't you listen to what your doctor told you? 
Didn't you listen to what your financial advisor told you? Didn't you, don't you understand the news? Don't you understand the circumstances? Can't you face reality? Aren't you worried about that? You know, I know I, I, know I, I could be. I know I probably should be, but you know, I don't know. I'm just not. I'm filled with hope. I actually think tomorrow's going to be better than today. I actually think the future's bright because I've placed my confident trust in God. I'm filled with hope. What a wonderful way to live. What a wonderful promise of God. So, so you begin to see it. How do I fill my life with the love of God? I sur surrender every day my heart to God. I surrender my heart to God. I turn to Him in prayer. I confess my sins. And then these benefits begin to fill my life because the love of God, when it gets in you, it casts out all the fears, all the worry, all the anxiety. So it's a great thing. So I not only surrender my heart to God, but number two, this is a, just a practical thing you can do every day to fill your life with the love of God, and that is every day I remember God loves me. You say, well, that's, you know, that's so simple. I, I, I can skip that. Wait a minute. Listen, if you don't feel loved by God, you're not going to love yourself. And you're not going to love others the way you need to. So I have to remind myself every day what God thinks about me. Trust me when I'm telling you this because there are all kinds of other voices. The world, the flesh, and the devil, they'll bombard you with all kinds of negative thoughts about you and about what God thinks about you and what you should think about yourself and what others think about you. And we're so worked up about that. So rather than those voices, I need to think about what God thinks about me. Would you agree with me that the truest thing about you is what God says about you? Is that, is that, is that right or is that not right? The truest thing about you is what God says about you. Not what you say about you, not what others say about you, certainly not what the devil says about you. The truest thing about you is what God says. Now what does God say about you? Let me just tell you. Four things for sure. Foundational things that are true of all of us, God thinks this about you. Number one, I'm completely accepted. You should write that down. I'm completely accepted. This is important because the deepest wounds in our lives are those caused by rejection. Think about that. So we spend much of our lives trying to gain the acceptance and avoid the rejection from our parents, from our peers, from those people we respect, from those people we envy, heck, from total strangers, just trying to get acceptance rather than rejection. But, here, but here's the myth. The myth says, if I could just be perfect, then everybody would like me. And that's just not true. Let me give you one example, and it's, we only need one, Jesus. This is a perfect guy. Let me ask you, did everybody like him? And not everybody's going to like you either. Here's the good news. You don't need everybody's approval to be happy. You don't need everybody's approval to be happy. Isn't that good news? Now, here's the bad news. You're not going to get it anyway. <laughs> it's not even possible. Titus 3.7, though, says Jesus made us acceptable to God. So we are acceptable to God. And that's a wonderful thing. I have to remind myself every day what God thinks about me. And he says that I am completely accepted. Now, here's the second thing he thinks, and that is I'm unconditionally loved. Unconditionally. Now, there are a lot of things that I can say about God's love, but two of the characteristics of God's love, which are absolutely true, is that it's consistent and it's unconditional. 
consistent and unconditional. I'll remind you, God's not fickle. He's not unpredictable. God doesn't say, I'm going to love you today, but tomorrow, you know, I had a bad hair day. No. That's not the way God operates. We've heard kids in our, in our youth program, 180, over the years, talk about this with regard to their parents, you know, in different kinds of words and different kinds of expressions, stories. Uh, one young guy in our youth group uh, not long ago, he said, said it simply like this. He said, growing up, I never knew if my dad was going to hug me or slug me. I never knew if my dad was going to hug me or slug me. Now, listen, inconsistent parents produce insecure kids. Inconsistent in their love, inconsistent in their patterns, produce insecure kids. That may be where some of our insecurity comes from, right? But God's love is consistent. It's not fickle. God doesn't say, I'm going to love you if, or I'm not going to love you because. God says, I'm going to love you, period. And let me tell you how that's possible for God. God's love is not based on how we perform. God's love is not based on what you do. God's love is based on who he is. He's loving. The essence of his character is love. And so he loves us. He chooses to love us. God's love is based then on his attributes. Isaiah 54.10 says this, My love for you will never end, says the Lord. My love for you will never end. So I am completely accepted and I am unconditionally loved. Well, that'll help you if you think that. Rehearse that every day. Now here's the third thing God says about you, and that is, I'm totally forgiven. Totally forgiven. So question, why are, you, why are you still carrying the shame? Why am I holding on to shame? I'm totally forgiven. Do you realize that before God even made you, he already knew the worst thing you'd ever do? Before he even made you, before you even hear, he knew the worst thing that you would ever do. And he knows the things that you're going to do. And it doesn't even matter to him. He already knows them, and yet he chooses, nevertheless, to love you. Romans 8, 1 says, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're forgiven. Totally. 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 Completely. Forgiven. Totally. Forgiven. God, God says that he separates your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. Someone tell me how far that is. He said, I, I bear your sins in the sea of forgetfulness, and I remember them no more. You don't have to live in that shame anymore. It doesn't even register with God. He's forgotten it. He's forgotten it. You are totally forgiven. That'll help you. Because the mess caused by that shame that you carry around all the time is ruining your relationships. Causes you to question your own, your own value. God says you're totally can, forgiven. And then here's the fourth thing. I, I'm considered extremely valuable. Considered extremely valuable. Let me ask you a question. What do you think you're worth? What are you worth? You. What are you worth? I'm not asking your net worth. I'm asking about your self-worth. What are you worth? Here's another way to ask the question. What is it that makes something valuable? What is it that makes something valuable? Let me just tell you, the two things that make something value is who it belongs to and what someone's willing to pay for it. Who it belongs to, what someone's willing to pay for it. For example, if, if I put 
uh, out for auction. Okay, we're going to auction off two baseball caps, two Cub baseball caps. One is from my youth. I've worn it. It's mine. And the other one comes from uh, a man you may have heard of who wore the cap frequently. There are several photos of him wearing it. And it was his favorite cap, and it was worn and owned by Albert Einstein. So Einstein had this cap on his head frequently in his life, and the other cap was worn by Paris. Which one has more value? Well, thank you for being polite and not just shouting it out. <laughs> I'll give you a nickel for yours. So who owns it? Who owns it assesses value, and then what someone is willing to pay for it determines value. For example, what is your house worth? Got bad news for you. Here in Delaware County, less than you think. <laughs> it's actually less than you think. What someone's, it doesn't matter how much you've invested in your house. It doesn't matter how much you paid for your house. The only value that it has now is determined by what someone else will pay for it. Now I hear this statement. Jesus Christ paid for you with his life. God went to the extreme expense of the sacrifice of the life of his own son in order to purchase you away from your sins. You can easily argue that the most precious thing that has ever existed in the universe, the most valuable thing that has ever existed, the life of the Son of God, was given in order to purchase you. So how valuable are you? Assess value by what someone's willing to pay for it. Can you imagine the disappointment that God experiences when we go around demeaning ourselves and hurting ourselves and diminishing ourselves and questioning ourselves and living in these shames and living in these fears and living in these other dysfunctions? What does it do to the heart of God when God says, wait a minute, I love you. I accept you. I forgive you completely. You're, value, you're precious to me. Believe that about yourself because if you'll believe that about yourself, it'll help you in your relationships. Sure will. Okay, so let's get to the last practical thing that we can do, the third thing that we can do to instill the love of God, and that is every day I offer that same love to others. As I receive it now, I want to give it away. John 13, 34, Jesus said, I'm giving you a new commandment to love each other, to love each other in the same way that I have loved you. Now, now here's the standard in relationships. God says the way that you mend your relationships and strengthen them is by loving people, accepting people, forgiving people, valuing people the same way that God has loved, accepted, forgiven you. You love and accept, value and, and, and forgive those you're in relationship with. Romans 15, 7, accept one another just as Christ has accepted you. So now the new standard is the same grace that you have received in love, acceptance, forgiveness, and value is the same kind of grace you extend to others in relationship. That's a high standard, isn't it? 
It's a, it's, a very, it's a very high expectation. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, Love never stops being patient. It never stops believing. It never stops hoping. It, love never gives up. Never. And so this is how we are called to be in the context of our relationship. Love never stops being patient with the people we're in relationship with. It never stops extending grace. It never stops believing. Even though there are tough times and failures and sin and this falling out that I've had in a certain relationship, love extends grace and expresses faith in persons. The same measure that you have been accepted and forgiven the same measure of patience that God has had with us. And aren't you glad God has been patient? Because if God wasn't a patient God, we're all done. We're all through. God has been patient with us. And love never stops being patient. And so the same grace that we have received, we offer it to others. Love endures the worst. It never gives up. You can throw anything at it. And it'll keep loving no matter what. Last, last thought. This sermon, this message today has been very, very helpful. Very helpful to many people. I want to encourage you and challenge you to take these notes, take them home, study them a little further, pay special attention in your small groups. It's going to be very helpful because if we can apply the love of God in our relationships, it has potential to change every relationship in the world in a positive way. No fear, no shame, no control, no separation, but peace and grace and forgiveness and acceptance and love. Wow. As we've received, so should we give in the context of these relationships. Could we pause and just pray about this for a little bit and ask God to help us? Now, it's been our custom in this series. I've offered the prayer, and you've prayed it within yourself, in your own heart, in your own mind. So let me do that again for you today. And so within yourself now, just pray these words. Dear God, I admit that I've made a mess in many of my relationships. They're complicated, they're broken, they're not the best. And I've often settled for less than the best. And some of my relationships right now need a transformation. And I'd like you to begin by changing me. Deliver me from these three fears that I've learned about today. I can see how they make me distant and defensive and even demanding. So today and each day from now on, I want to surrender my heart to you. Practice that right now, friend. I'm doing this right now. I surrender my heart to you. I want to learn to live my life in your love, filled with your love. Please replace my shame with your love. When I'm afraid to let others see the real me, remind me of how you see me. Say this now within yourself. Say it. Thank you that you accept me completely. S say this within yourself. Say it. Thank you that you love me unconditionally. 
say, thank you that you forgive me totally. Say, thank you that you paid such a high price to save me. And now, dear God, help me to accept others just as you have accepted me. Help me to love others unconditionally just as you have loved me. Help me to forgive others totally just as you have forgiven me. And help me to value others as much as you value me. Say this prayer within yourself. Dear God, I want to be known as a loving person. So help me to extend grace to the people around me. And help me to express faith in the people around me. And to expect the best in the people around me. And when it happens, help me to endure the worst. Because I want to live my life in love. And so I humbly ask this in Jesus' name. Now, if that's your prayer, say amen.